I really thank God for, for today. Today we are, we are privileged, we are honored, um, you know, beyond measure to have with us our bishop uh, of the Nairobi Chapel uh, family. And uh, he's here to give us uh, the word of God and to, to preach to us. So I'll, I'll invite him to come up. And just before he does, or rather just as he does, I want to read a scripture to us. Um, if we can turn our Bibles uh, to the book of uh, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 to 20. Let me swipe there real quick. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 20. I'll read it to us. It says this. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled to us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Amen. Let's give the bishop a hand as he comes up. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, is it okay if I pray for you as we start? Let, let us pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this day. We thank you, Lord, for the blessing um, of, of this ministry. We thank you, Lord, for seven years of your goodness upon us, upon this church, upon every family that's here. We thank you, Lord, for the Nairobi Chapel um, and the ministry that Nairobi Chapel has around the world and the blessing that is emerging from all of that ministry. We thank you, Lord, for our bishop who's with us today. Uh, we thank you that he's taken time to come and be with us and to, to speak your word uh, to us uh, through him. And I pray that, Lord, as he speaks, Lord, you will anoint his, his tongue, his mind, his thoughts, that uh, he shall bear forth your word uh, to us. And that, Lord, you may bless him immensely as he does so. We give you praise and glory for it in Jesus' name that we do pray. Thank you, Buana Mongera, and uh, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Wonderful to be here with you on this seventh anniversary. As a church, you are no longer a newborn church. Far from it. You know, churches go through stages of development where they begin off as a newborn, as a young church, and then they become like, you know, an infant, uh, a child, they become teenagers, and then they become adults. You certainly are an adult church. And testimony to that has been just even the fact that you have continued to gather to celebrate the Lord through this COVID season. When COVID began two years ago, nobody knew what the outcome would be. And for us in church ministry, with the requirements for social distancing, where you can't have, you know, your home cell group or Bible study, and where you can't gather in church, and then the churches were closed down, and it was for a very long time, and all these things happened, and we were not sure what will be the end and the outcome of what COVID is doing to the church. Will it devastate the church? 
or will the church nevertheless uh, survive and rebound after COVID is all over? And it's a miracle of God to see that the church has thrived, the church continues, the church was not halted, the church did not die, and the church is growing. And you are a testimony of that. And so I want to celebrate that. Two of those seven years have been very difficult years, but God has been good to you, and you're doing well. And I praise the Lord for that. And I have a prayer for you as we go into the future that I will mention in just a little while. But I want to say thank you to the advisory team, Buana um, Mutiga, and the team that works alongside him, because you have been a pillar in all the years and the transitions that have been true of this church. You've been very generous in giving us people to go to Ghana and to other countries. <laughs> and sometimes you almost pulled fists on me, but uh, praise the Lord. You have been faithful and consistent to give leadership through those years. You've been faithful and consistent to raise up leaders, even leaders like uh, Buana Kibet here, Pastor Kibet, and also uh, Pastor Titus and others. I haven't seen Brenda yet, but she's been here. Oh, there she is in the corner. Hi, Brenda. It's such a joy to see you. I'm sure even Shitemi will celebrate because you're, you're probably the longest standing pastor here at uh, NCLA. And we celebrate you for your faithfulness and consistency over those years. And so thank you for your leadership. Thank you, pastors, for continuing to shepherd God's people. And thank you for all those of you who are a part of this church from long ago through the years, consistent and faithfully serving in the children's ministry and wherever else the Lord has had in store for you. You know, there's a funny thing happening in Africa, and I want to mention my vision and prayer for this church as we go into the future. There's a funny thing happening in Africa right now, and I don't know how many of you are avid international news readers. Don't just read Kenyan news, but also read about what's happening around the world. And in this last week, there's been an article on the global you know, uh, news medias about COVID and Africa. Has anybody caught that? It was coming out of Zimbabwe, where the World Health Organization and many scientists cannot explain what is happening with Africa when it comes to COVID. I was told by somebody not too long ago that when COVID began, the BBC filled a plane load of journalists to come to Africa and wait for the devastation and the annihilation of the populations of Africa when COVID finally got to Africa. The predictions were that our medical services cannot survive. We don't have the necessary equipment. We don't produce enough oxygen for those who would be incapacitated by COVID. And COVID would spread across Africa and just completely devastate the continent of Africa. And so the BBC had a plane load of journalists going to different points of Africa, waiting to begin writing the news of what was happening to Africa. And then nothing happened. And there wasn't the devastation. And I must admit that I was one of those who thought, this thing is going to finish us. 
I thought to myself, you know, yes, for you and I who live in your own individual home, who can, you know, uh, what is it, social distance from the public, can have, you know, food brought to your doorstep or groceries brought to your, brought to your doorstep, yes, you would somehow manage it. You can afford to get the sanitizers, you can afford to get the face masks and whatever else is required of us. But what would happen to the slums of Africa? And then nothing happened. Now we shouldn't be surprised because I do remember when this thing was declared and announced. Can you remember how the border border riders, drivers, all gathered together and they held a day of prayer and fasting, pleading to God to spare Africa? And the same was true of churches. The amount of prayers that were raised up to heaven was absolutely astounding. And it would seem that God heard our prayers and he answered. And so you know what, guys? We're all busy trying to explain without giving God the credit that he heard our prayers and answered our prayers and nothing happened in Africa. And so this article that's been in the papers in the last one week was writing about that. That in places like Zimbabwe, no one wears masks anymore. And they were talking about the fact that I cannot even remember the last time somebody died from COVID. They can't explain it. Right now, COVID has resurged in China. It's resurged in Europe. And there are sections of America where it's resurging but not in Africa. And they can't explain that. Even in India that was first knocked out by COVID, while it's growing in other parts of the world, in India, it has dropped so drastically that they cannot explain what is going on. And so they said, well, you know, Africa's hot, and so maybe, you know, it doesn't spread as much. You know, Africans, you know, there's fresh air, and they live out in the open. Many are farmers, so they don't get COVID. And they said Africans are hardy. They have gotten Ebola and all other sorts of diseases, and COVID has been knocked out by their damu, which is hardcore and doesn't catch COVID. And they tried to explain it away, but nobody would give credit to God that he hears prayers and, th and that he answers prayers. And so right now, it's not clear why it is that COVID isn't spreading as rapidly as was expected or has been expected. When it began, we as a church said, guys, for the next you know, period of time until we're over this thing, let's comply with the requirements of the government to shut down the churches, to do social distancing, to have anybody, everybody sanitized as they come in, and all the other things that you know have been done and you have seen them here, they have been done well here. And we said, let's just comply. And for the pastors, take a break, because this has been a hard season, and in fact, the last two years has been very, very stressful on pastors as they have counseled and cared for and tried to serve people on the net and all the other things that have been done. So slow down and take a break while we wait for things to reopen up again. Of course, it's been two years, which is a long time. I am praying that next year 
this thing will fade away. And that as we come to the close of this year, this is the last we're seeing of face masks and everything else we're doing. And my prayer for next year is that where we may have slowed down social distancing in churches like this, we could have twice as many people in here were it not for COVID. That as we come to next year, that in fact, this place will be filled out. And I want to speak a word to our chair of the advisory committee and to our pastors, Pastor Brenda and all the other pastors, to challenge you that these be the targets of the next year. That we will grow numerically as a church in such a densely populated area like Langata. That's the first. In the children's ministry, in the youth ministry, in the adult ministry, in our other ministries, whether it's plug-in or whatever else it is. And I am charging you to strategize and posture yourself to help that happen. The God who hears prayers is able to bring people. And we need to go out and draw them in and invite them and relate with them and befriend them and all the other things that we do as churches. But this is a first. And the reason I say it's a first is this. The strength of a church does not lie in its numbers. The numerical capacity, the seating capacity of a church is not the indicator of the health and the strength of the church. The health and the strength of the church is seen by its sending capacity, not its seating capacity. If we were to become a church that is full and we love the numbers of people who come and we're all friends and we're all buddies and we're all in each other's houses and we're all in our small groups and what a wonderful community we are. But the kingdom of God is not growing and we're not sending out people, we're not sending out missionaries, we're not sending out church planters, then we are not a healthy church. It was an interesting little exercise that Bwana Mutiga did when he was up here to ask who came in the last two years. I think we had two people. Now, I do understand that COVID has, you know, wrecked its havoc. There are people who have come, couldn't stay, had to relocate, move to other areas. You know, some of the people who are friends with us with COVID and the loss of jobs have had to move to the outskirts of the city, maybe to other cities, maybe to other towns, maybe even go back to the rural area. So it's not quite clear, you know, what, what the patterns have been. But two people over two years, we need to grow, guys. And I want to challenge you, Pastor Kibet, Pastor Titus, Pastor Brenda, and all the other pastors, especially you because you're with outreach, that we need to see this church growing and we need to see this church sending. And so I'm asking you, over the next two years, I would like you to do two things. The first of those is to plant a church like this that reaches people like you, okay? In the same demographic. Because I was amazed to see the number of people we have in the worship team 
and the musicians who are here. I don't think I've been to a church recently that had three keyboards. What luxury. Guys. And we could form three worship teams out of this one team to go and plant churches. And so I want to encourage you to plant a church within the next two years. But two things need to happen. One thing needs to happen for that to happen. Church planting is first and foremost a matter of leadership development. If you're not developing leaders as a church, then you have no one to send out. And there are leaders here in the making. And there are leaders here in the making. And on the pastoral team, there are leaders in the making. And God is in the business of calling men and women into ministry for leadership and for the expansion of the kingdom. Find them, train them, send them out as you commission them. But then secondly, is I'm challenging you to plant two churches that are not like this church. If all we ever reach in this country are the middle class of this country, even though they be so valuable and important in God's eyes, we would have left out over two-thirds of this country who are not in that middle class. The population density of Langata may be high, but it doesn't even begin to compare with Kibira, which is just next door. And we can reach people there. And we can plant churches straight out of this church. Yes, we do have churches as Nairobi Chapel in Kibira itself, but out of this church as an outreach mission arm to the people who are there because those numbers also continue to grow. And so I'm challenging you over the next two years to plant a church like NCLA and to plant two churches that are not like NCLA but are reaching a different demographic of this country. For that to happen, then you need to become that much more focused in terms of your leadership development, in terms of your training up young men and women who can go, in terms of your setting aside money for the work of missions, in terms of prayer, and you have a beautiful prayer program here, the focus and the discipline of prayer is a beautiful thing, but with passion, because it begins to happen when we raise up our prayers to God, I want to challenge you. Seven years are amazing, and they have been good years, but we cannot afford to rest on our laurels and celebrate the past at the expense of the future. Our eyes must always be on the future. And as a church, we do not drive in reverse, and we do not drive with our eyes on the, on the back view mirror. We keep our eyes focused on what God is calling us ahead. Amen? Amen. I'm leaving this charge with you, and hopefully you'll invite me in less than two years to come to commission those that are being sent out to plant churches and to celebrate what God has done. Well, I want to turn to a scripture in the book of uh, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 through to verse 20 that was read to us by a dear brother, um, and I want to focus on this passage. Let me begin by asking you a question. Here is a question. Are the things that you are living for worth 
Christ's dying for. Well, let me ask it in a slightly different way. For those of you who are young, starting off in your careers, starting off in your future, those of you who are recently married, those of you who have been in business and in leadership for a length of time, are the dreams you have for your life worth Christ's dying for? I think it's an incredible question to ask. Who can ever know whether the things they're living for are worth Christ dying for? In fact, why did Christ die? Well, the passage that was read to us tells us clearly. Because in verse 14, Paul says that Christ's love compels us, for we are convinced that one died and therefore all died. And he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. Now we may ask a question, not live for myself? We hardly know anyone who doesn't live for themselves. In fact, we all live in such a way that more than anything, we're looking out for number one. We make choices through the lens of what furthers my dreams and my desires and my passions and my pursuits, but rarely are those filtered through the lens, the lens of Christ's death and what furthers his mission. Our biggest goal is oftentimes to pursue my dreams at whatever cost, to get the things in life that I want more than anything else, to climb that career ladder, to create wealth so that I can live the good and easy life to find personal happiness no matter what it takes. So often, what we live for is nothing more than ourselves. So much so that we even often use our faith as a means to try and wrestle out of God's arm out of God's promises, out of God's desire to bless us, everything that we possibly can, especially when it comes to wealth and homes and cars and money and fashion and whatever else it is. And this self-centeredness has become a basic, normal feature of the Christian life today. When I share Jesus Christ with somebody else, oftentimes the bait I put as I share is what God can do for them. 
He can take care of your problems. He can bless you. He can make you wealthy. He can do this for you. He can do that for you. When I go into a bookstore to buy a book, I want to buy a book that tells me how God will bless my finances, what his promises are for my marriage, what he will do for my career, how he will help me fulfill my goals for my life. And God, my dear friends, can do all these things because he intensely wants to bless you and I. But the reason why Christ died does not revolve around me and myself. Sometimes we act as though God belongs to us. And as though I am the center of the universe and the center of his attention and love. As though everything, including God, revolves around me to bless me, to enrich me, to grow me, to give me the good life. Well, my dear friends, I have news for you and I today. God doesn't want to be involved in your plans for your life. He wants you to be involved in his plans for your life. Christ died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. In John chapter 12 and verse 24, therefore, Jesus looked to his disciples and he said to them, Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. If that grain were to cry out and say, I don't want to die, I don't want to die, please leave me alone, leave me alone, it would never bear fruit. And this principle comes home again and again and again in the Bible. In the very next verse in John chapter 12 and verse 25, Jesus went on to explain and to say, the man who loves his life will lose it. The one who lives for himself will never get what it is that he longs for. While the man who hates his life and gives it away and gives it up for Christ. The one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternity. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. And my Father in heaven will honor the one who serves me. My dear friends, what God is saying is only in dying to self can we live when the apostle paul wrote in philippians chapter 3 verse 7 through to verse 9 whatever was to my profit i now consider loss for the sake of christ and what is more i consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish 
that I may gain Christ and be found in him. He knew what he was talking about because he had been that grain of wheat that had fallen to the ground, been put to the ground, that had been broken open and now could bear much fruit and be a sweet perfume and fragrance for Christ. Someone once said, and I quote, no great advances have been made for Christianity by men and women who were unwilling to give up their lives. No great advances, no great feats, no great wins have been made for the kingdom of heaven by men and women who were unwilling to give up their lives. Unwilling to give up their lives? We can hardly give up a TV show that we know is not even honoring to Christ. Give up my life? Why is it this way? I believe it is because you and I have never settled in our hearts that I do not live for myself anymore. For Christ's love compels me that one died and therefore all died, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, that those who live should no longer live for their own dreams, that those who live should no longer live for their careers, that those who live should no longer live for their comforts and their security and their own pleasures, but that they should live for him who died for them. I think one of the reasons why we can't seem to live for Christ today is because we want to live the safe and secure, the comfortable and the rich life. But when my greatest desire in life is to live safe, when my biggest dream is to live comfortable, then I will not risk my time, I will not risk my comforts, I will not risk my wealth, I will not risk my treasures, I will not risk my retirement for the things that move God's heart. But it has also been said, and I quote again, it is possible to evade a multitude of sorrow by cultivating an insignificant life. Listen to what Gary Hogan of the International Justice Mission says. Here is a choice that our Father wants us to understand as Christians. And I believe that this is a choice of our age, of this generation. Do you want to be brave or do you want to play safe? Because you cannot do both. Doing God's will in this fallen world is inherently dangerous. In fact, 
if following Jesus doesn't feel dangerous to you right now, you should probably stop and check to see if it's really Jesus you're following. Or to put it in simple language so that we can all understand, if you haven't met the devil recently, you're probably walking in the same direction. Think about that. If you are always going against Satan's plans and purposes in this world, then you are walking countercultural to Satan and you will meet him repeatedly. He will harass you. He will try and kill your faith. He, he, he will do everything he can to stop you. But if you're not a threat to Satan and you're walking in the same direction as he is, you will never meet him. Can you imagine if Jesus had said to God the Father before coming down to earth to redeem mankind and said, Father in heaven, Father, I am ready to obey. I am ready to go to earth. But can I ask one question before I go? And the Father in heaven said, yes, my son, ask, ask your question. And Jesus asked God, you know, I, I just wanted to ask Father, is it safe? God the Father would have had to tell him, no, my son. What you are about to do in obedience to me is not safe. Immediately you are born, men will come hunting for you to kill you. Innocent babies will be killed as a result. You will have to go into hiding as a refugee to Africa to escape those who are trying to kill you. And when you return, a whole institution would have been dedicated to killing and removing you. And they will try and stone you. They will try and throw you over a cliff. They will shame you and ridicule you. And eventually they will catch you and whip you and spit at you and crucify you. Nails will be driven through the palms of your feet and your hands. And you will die an excruciatingly painful death. No, my son. It is not safe for you to go to earth. But will you go anyway? The disciples didn't try and play it safe either. They were persecuted. They were flogged. They were imprisoned. They were exiled. But in all their suffering and the persecution they faced, they never shrunk back. And they never asked God to reduce or remove their suffering and their pain. Instead, their testimony is recorded for us in Acts chapter 4 and verse 29, where they said, Lord, consider the threats of those who persecute us and enable your servants to speak your word with greater boldness 
In other words, when they persecute us at this level, give us greater boldness than the persecution that we speak at this level. And if they raise a persecution, then raise our boldness, never shrinking back. Paul himself didn't play it safe either. He writes in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 through to verse 27, I have worked much harder been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled, and I've often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst, and I've often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. He lived a brave life and did not try and lived a safe life. Living for Christ alone means living brave and not safe. Where living brave means obedience no matter what the cost. Where living brave means taking a step of faith outside of my comfort zone. Where living brave means trusting God for the unknown. Where living brave means not demanding that I first know all the details and the plans of God before I am willing to obey. Where living brave means that God doesn't have to explain himself to me before he acts in my life. Where living brave means that God doesn't have to ask for my permission before he can call me to a difficult and hard commission. Because if God has to ask for my permission, if God has to ask for your permission, then he is not God, you are. Because he has to ask you for permission. I don't want to live for a God who has to ask my permission. I want to live for the God that is written of in the book of the Psalms, chapter 115 and verse 3, where the psalmist writes and he says, Our God is in heaven and he does whatever pleases him. He doesn't ask for permission because he is God. But if your greatest desire is to live the safe life, then you will never know the great things of God. You know, many of us like to quote the passage in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, and you probably even memorize this. I have been crucified with Christ, we say. In fact, we say this with a tear rolling down our cheeks because we feel this verse. We feel it intensely. We feel it passionately. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for you, for me. <laughs> Let me tell you something about dead men, my dear friends. If you, want, if you went to the morgue and pulled out, at the, you know, the morgue at the city council and pulled out one of the, of, 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 of the, what are they called? You pulled out one of the trays on which a dead body lies and you whipped out a gun and you held it to the head of the person who's lying on that tray and you told him, you know, I can shoot you. I can shoot you right now. Here, I can kill you. I can shoot you. Doesn't flinch. There is no fear. Why? Because he's dead. And if you took out a metal rod and you beat him and beat him and beat him until he was blue in the flesh, he doesn't cry out because he has died. Dead men have no fear. So may I suggest to us today that many of us here, even in spite of Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where we say, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I have died to myself. Many of us here did not really die. We only fainted. And when trouble and danger and inconvenience comes our way we wake up and we are afraid one of the biggest problems of churches today is that we have too many christians in the church can you believe that we have too many christians in the church but not enough disciples. Today, everyone calls themselves a Christian. You ask them, why are you a Christian? I'm a Christian because I was given a Christian name. I'm a Christian because my mother taught me to go to church every Sunday. I'm a Christian because Christians, you know, uh, pray often and I pray. I once asked a member of a church. I had noticed that whenever I preached, I made an altar call. You know, come if you're feeling unwell, come if you're feeling X, Y, Z, you know, if there's a problem here, if there's a problem there. This guy always came forward. And one day I asked him, you know, like, even when I make an altar call for salvation, you come. How many times have you come? I can't even count. And I said, why is it his name was John? Why is it John that even when I call those women who are struggling with, you know, problems in their feet, I mean, in their womb, and, you know, uh, are having imbalances in their estrogen. You come, and you're a man. And he told me, hey, pastor, let me tell you, me, if there's a blessing being given, I will go. <laughs> Christians who are Christians because their parents were Christians. Christians who are Christians because when they filled the population census, there was Hindu, there was Muslim, there was Christian. And so they figured I'm Christian. Too many Christians in the church, but not 
enough disciples. So you ask the question, so what's the difference between a Christian and a disciple? There's a little story I'll tell you that for me divides it like a knife, a hot knife cutting through butter. It's a story that comes out of China, and it may be anecdotal. Maybe it didn't really happen, but it illustrates a point, okay? A story that comes out of China of a time when the, the church in China was under tremendous persecution, and it still faces persecution today, but tremendous persecution. And so the Chinese Christians would gather only in small group like a home cell, and they would gather in a way that did not attract any attention. And so when they would meet in a home, they would come over a period of about five or six hours, one in the morning and stay there, another one maybe an hour later and stay there, maybe two as a couple coming in and stay there. And finally, when they were all gathered, they would have a quiet service, no public address system, they would whisper to one another, they would not sing songs aloud because they did not want to be discovered. Unfortunately, one day, when a group of them was meeting, the doors were burst open, and at the back of the church were four soldiers with guns, and two of them stayed at the back, two of them came forward and faced a congregation. The two at the back shut the doors. Everybody knew what was going to happen. And then the two at the front said to the few people, 10, 15 people who were gathered there, any of you who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ, doesn't believe in this Christian gospel, get out now. And you cannot believe how many of those who are there clambered over each other trying to escape in the little opportunity given as the doors were open so that they could run out. Finally, when they had left, only a handful of three or four people were left, the pastor being one of them. And so the doors at the back were shut, and the two soldiers with the guns came to the front to join their colleagues at the front. And as they stood there, the four of them cocked their guns. And then the leader said, Pastor, now we can worship God. You see, my dear friends, the Christians had all left, but the disciples all remained. A disciple is someone who is willing to die for the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, someone who has died for the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians come by name. Christians come by birth. Christians come because that's what they filled in the census report. There are too many Christians, but very few disciples. One of my heroes of faith, a man whose life has greatly encouraged me, lived about 200, 250 years ago. I never met him, of course, because I was not alive then. But as I have read his story, I have said, Lord, let my life be like this. And he was a man who was called George Mueller. He began children's homes in England. When George was born in 1805, he, as a young man, was a rascal. In his own words, he says, even his father could not control him. When his mother was dying, he was not at her bedside as she drew in her last breath. He was out on the streets, fooling around with his drunken teenage friends. 
And his father was so frustrated with this young man that he took George Mueller and he whooped him and thrashed him and then sent him off to the rural area to go and reform his life. But even there when George went there, he became as equally big a rascal in the rural area of Germany as he was in the city itself. Finally, his father had had enough. And his father decided, look, you will amount to nothing. Your life will amount to nothing. There is no career you can hold the way you live. So I'm going to send you to the, a theological college and train you as a minister of the gospel. I don't know what he was thinking or what he was saying about us pastors. So he sent him off to theological college. The very first day that George Miller was there, a friend of his who happened to be in theological college invited him to go and attend a Bible study. And because George didn't know what took place here, he said, okay, I'll come. And he went. But that night in Bible study, he met God. And George Miller accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior. As he began to grow as a Christian, he began to notice things about Christians that he had never seen before. And they deeply troubled him as he watched them. And it was that, by and large, most Christians don't really believe in Christ and his promises. Here's a simple test to explain what George was observing. If I came to you today as a president of this nation and I told you, Susan, I've heard about you and greatly admired what I've heard. And I have set aside 10 million shillings that I want to give you as a gift because you're such an outstanding person. I kid you not, if you don't have a bank account, you'd go and open one waiting for that money to come because the president has promised you 10 million shillings. You would tell your mother, you would tell your friends, and you would wait with great joy. That night you would not sleep because you're so happy. Because the president said he'll give you 10 million shillings. But when God tells you, I am Jehovah Jireh, and I will take care of all your needs. What am I supposed to do with that? God, me, I have to pay rent this month. And when you give me, I want to see the money. Show me the money. Show me the money. That's what I want to see. We don't really believe God. But when a man gives us a promise, we believe him and we celebrate. And George Miller noticed this about many of the Christians that he was coming across. It so deeply impacted him that he determined to do something about it. In a sense, to put God to a test. And he said this in his own words. I, a poor man with no money, have decided by prayer and faith alone to start an orphanage to provide shelter for the little children who live on the streets. I will care for these children and will clothe and feed and house them without ever asking any human being for a single cent. God will have to show that he can provide for his people.
I will never ask anyone for money. It is my hope that in this way, I will be able to strengthen the faith of God's children and also provide a testimony for those who do not know God to show them that he is faithful to care for his own. Here are the accomplishes of George Mueller's life. In 1836, at the mere age of 30 years, some of you here today are 30, 29, 31. At your age, George Mueller took in 30 street girls, orphans, and he began to care for them in his own home. In time, the number of children he was taking in was so many for his little home that he could not manage. And by faith, without ever asking anyone for a single shilling, George Mueller built five large orphan houses that could each house 400 children at a go, 2,000 children in total, without ever asking for money. Over his life, it is said that he took in and cared for 10,024 children over the course of his life. His example changed the country of England. By then he had moved to England because when he started in 1836 and took in the first few girls, there were only 3,600 beds for orphans in the whole of England. But his story inspired so many people that people began to open up their homes. And by the time of his death, there were over 100,000 beds across England to take in street children. The children were called street urchins. They were a menace. They were like a pest. They would raid the markets. They had no adults parenting them. They had to find food. And so they worked in the factories. They would steal. They would get anything they could. And nobody wanted them. George Mueller built 117 schools and educated a total of 120,000 children who otherwise would never have gotten an education. When he turned 70, he fulfilled a lifelong dream to become a missionary himself at the age of 70. And he decided that he would hand over the work of the orphanages to others while he himself went out to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. He visited a total of 42 countries over the next 17 years. 42 countries. It is estimated that he preached to over 3 million people altogether before he finally died at the age of 87. Stories are told of how the children would get up in the morning in the orphanages and there was no food in the pantry. And George Miller would come and tell the children, children, let's pray and thank God, not ask God, but thank God for the breakfast that he will provide. And the children would clap their hands as children would, and they would pray and thank you, Lord, that you're going to give us breakfast. And even as they said amen, there would be a knock on the door. And the local butcher would come and say, God woke me up at 3 a.m. this morning and told me to prepare food for you and I have brought it now. 
One story is told of how a milkman taking his milk to market on a cart, the wheel fell off, the cart completely broke, but the milk was saved. But now, there was no way he could get to market with it. It would all go bad. He was at the door of the orphanage. And so he knocked and told George Miller, I do not know what to do with my milk except to give it to the children here so that they can drink it. God provided for him. George Miller is my hero, and I've chosen him as a hero because he lived a brave life and not a safe life. He's my hero because he was willing to step out and take risks. He's my hero because his faith was real and he wasn't playing safe and because he dared to believe God for the impossible. And so God used him. So let me conclude by asking my question again. Are the things that you are living for today worth Christ's dying for? I'd like us to pray. And pray, dear Father, that even as I have spoken this morning, you have stirred the hearts of many here. Because the truth be told, we forget why you died on the cross for us. We forget what salvation was about. We forget the death that you paid for us. And we live for our careers and we live to create wealth and we live for our own pleasures. And the cross is dimmed and we lose focus and drift and there is no fruit in our life. My prayer, Lord, is today, even as I have spoken, that you have convicted the hearts of one, maybe two here, because you've been calling them to become ministers of the gospel and they have been trying to run away. Because you've been calling them to give sacrificially, but all they do is count their debt and they don't want to give. Because you've been calling them to be bold in speaking out the gospel, daring in believing you for the impossible. But everybody tells them, be realistic, man. It cannot happen. My prayer, Lord, is that from this place, you will raise up a harvest of men and women who through their lifelong will remain faithful to be disciples who are willing to pay the cost of embracing the cross. And it's not about them. It's about you, no matter what the cost is. Father, would you pick them even now? And I'm going to ask you, if you're here and you know that God is speaking to you, could I just ask you to raise a hand as a sign of your willingness to say, yes, Lord, I hear you and I will obey. Just raise a hand. Father, thank you for those who have raised hands. Anyone else? You know them. You know what you're calling them to. You know what you want to do through their life. Would you give them the boldness to step out in faith? and believe you to accomplish your purposes for them. They may not know what it entails, what the next step is, but that's okay because you are their God and you will guide them and you will show them. And when the time is right,
it will be clear even to them. For the rest of us, Lord, may it be that in our own quiet way, we would take steps towards being true disciples who aren't just in this thing for what we can get out of it, but are here because we believe that you paid the price for us so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. May that be the testimony of each person here. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.